Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. From Sony Music Entertainment and Campsite Media, this is Infamous. I'm Natalie Robermitt. So here's a question. Who is the most important woman in fashion? Maybe even in media? I bet a lot of you know, and for those who don't, it's the person who allegedly kept her sunglasses on while laying off much of Condé Nast's staff. Anna Wintour. Her name is Anna Winter, a name that strikes terror in some, loathing in others, and transforms yet others into obsequious toadies. Whether or not you know her by name, chances are Anna Wintour has influenced what you put on your body. When you hear Anna Wintour, you probably think Vogue, that bob, the sunglasses. And of course, the devil wears Prada. There is some reason that my coffee isn't here. Has she died or something? In the movie, Meryl Streep plays a thinly-veiled version of Anna Wintour, and Anne Hathaway plays her new, bedraggled second assistant. Because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that... In 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. But the real Anna Wintour is perhaps even more interesting than fiction. Look, can I just address the elephant in the room? You're wearing your dark glasses. <laughs> They're incredibly useful yeah. because you avoid people knowing what you're thinking about. She served as editor-in-chief of Vogue for 36 years. And now she's the global content officer of Condé Nast, the media powerhouse that publishes the likes of The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, and GQ, among others. What time did you wake up this morning? Five o'clock. What do you usually have with breakfast? Starbucks. How long have you been in this office for? Forever. And of course, Anna runs the Met Gala. She started believing that 
people who didn't deserve to be there were able to get in because in her view, the ticket prices were too low. They were only $15,000 a ticket. And she felt that enabled a certain form of riffraff to be able to <laughs> vandalize her event. And so she raised Vandalized. the prices to $25,000 a ticket in order to maintain the high level that she believes the Met Gala should exhibit. Anna is so powerful that fashion houses consult her before appointing a new head designer. But over the last four decades, Anna has expanded her power to other realms, becoming one of the most influential democratic fundraisers and a behind the scenes player in Hollywood. I, I don't know anything about uh, uh, fashion and I don't read Vogue regularly, but I know a lot about you. So that says to me that you are transcendent. You, you are bigger than, than what you do for a living. Is that a fair assessment? Um, well, I, uh, <laughs> I read in the New York Times this week that I'm uh, an ice queen. Mm -hmm. I'm the Sun King. Uh, I'm an alien fleeing from District 9, and I'm a dominatrix. <laughs> <laughs> so I reckon that makes me a, a lukewarm royalty with a whip. Uh, from outer space. Mm -hmm. What do you think? <laughs> Good gig. But despite her best efforts, Anna is now presiding over a dwindling empire of legacy media. So what do you do when you're the most important person in a very, very small and disappearing pond? This episode, I'm talking to back row writer and Anna Wintour biographer, Amy O'Dell, about how Wintour's career tells the story of fashion and feminism over the last 40 years. Plus, she gives us the scoop on Anna Wintour's Finsta, the time she was considered for an ambassadorship, and what Anna really thought of The Devil Wears Prada. Amy, welcome to Infamous. Can you introduce yourself? I'm Amy O'Dell. I'm a fashion and culture journalist, and I'm the author of Anna, the Biography. How did you start writing about fashion and, and writing a biography of Anna Wintour? maybe the scariest woman in fashion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I came to it somewhat by accident because my first fashion journalism job was at The Cut. I was the first full-time mm. blogger at The Cut for New York Magazine. And I got that job by doing party reporting, going to oh, red wow. carpet events and interviewing celebrities. So that's how I got into fashion. And then Anna Winter. She is the most fascinating figure in fashion and one of the most fascinating figures in culture, one of the most successful and significant business leaders of the last uh, maybe 60 years. So when my publisher came to me asking if I wanted to do a biography about her, I thought that was a brilliant, brilliant idea. I think I didn't realize before reading your book that Anna Wintour's influence spans not just fashion, but culture, Hollywood, politics. And I think I hadn't really known just how powerful and how influential she was, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. But I think the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I feel as though fashion is in a crisis. We're in this era of climate crisis, but fast fashion has never been more popular. I think COVID really emphasized how irrelevant these sort of like spring summer fashion show calendars are yet we're all still in this constant era of consumption and my tiktok is just constantly filled with micro trends but then print media and vogue has never felt less relevant <laughs> 
So it, it just feels like a giant muddle to all make sense of. I, I feel the same way. I write about fashion twice a week in my Substack newsletter at amyodoll.substack.com. And those are the issues that I try to wrestle with there. Consumers are really concerned about climate change, about the impact fashion has on global warming, or the impact mm-hmm. fashion has on garment workers. This came up over and over again, mm-hmm. reporting the Anna book. People in fashion just support each other. It's a very small industry. Mm-hmm. They're all kind of friends. And there's not a lot of critique or, you know, I think often deep reflection on how the industry really impacts the world or <laughs> how it could have a more positive impact on the world. And I think you could also look to Anna as to why the industry is the way that it is, because in order for her to make Vogue the really successful business that it has been, she had to really champion the industry and make Vogue the leader of the industry. There's so much going on behind the scenes with Anna that we don't see and that she doesn't Mm. talk about publicly. Like, there's probably no major fashion designer appointment at any brand that doesn't have some input from her. That was something I was really struck by, that she basically runs this business in some ways by pairing designers with fashion houses. I mean, can you talk about some of these instances where Anna has served as a kingmaker? So I interviewed the Parenza Schooler designers for the book. Mm-hmm. So there's a famous story of how one of them encountered her on a flight, tapped her on the shoulder. She was sitting in first class and they were in coach because he was like just getting started or was at Parsons and <laughs> figured, well, I'll just take my shot and go talk to Anna Winter. And she doesn't respond on the plane. She's got her shades on. She later says that she wasn't ignoring him. She was sleeping. But he slips her an air sickness bag that he's written a note on. And she's impressed by this. And she sends him to Michael Kors. He interns at Michael Kors. And their career takes off. And I think what struck me, too, is that her realm expands far beyond fashion to other facets of culture, including Hollywood. You have this anecdote about Hugh Jackman arranging a meeting with Anna and another editor to talk about The Greatest Showman and kind of potential other casting for it. Can you tell that story very quickly? Yes. So Hugh Jackman summoned Anna and senior members of her editorial team at Vogue to just talk through this movie and get their ideas on who to cast and stuff like that. And Mark Holgate remembered spitting out the name Adele, who like obviously (laughs) she wasn't cast, but it's rather extraordinary, right? That here's this very successful Hollywood figure who is putting together a movie and the opinion he wants is Anna Wintour's. I, I did not realize going into the book that that kind of stuff really was happening all the time. And I, I am sure is still happening today. Well, I think what it underscored to me is is the extent to which Vogue is not a journalistic endeavor. There, You made the point that many years later, Vogue then did a sort of big splashy feature on The Greatest Showman, or, but they then never disclosed that those meetings took place. Yeah. Or that Anna had any involvement. And that's really wild to me. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny you say that's wild because I feel like that's just so indicative of how this industry works and how these magazines work, or maybe I should say worked because there's so little of magazines anymore. But this is really how Anna created the Vogue brand. She really has made it an access brand where Mm. they get access to celebrities that so few outlets Mm -hmm. get. 
Well, you talked about how it, you know, that this is just sort of how these magazines worked. And one thing I was struck by was the credits in terms of like the designer credits. Could you just explain those to people who might not know what those are? They seem to work as a kind of payola, although I'm sure these people would not want to phrase it that way. I think over time, as it became harder and harder to run a media business, the line between editorial and advertising has dissolved a lot more. Credits are when you're looking at a fashion editorial in Vogue or on Vogue.com, saying which designers made the stuff that they're featuring. So you might be looking at, let's say, a Natalie Portman cover, and she's wearing a gown, and the gown, you open the magazine, and you see the credits are Dior because Natalie Portman has a contract with Dior. She's the face of Dior. And at her her team would have needed to have a sense of which designers were getting the most credits and the designers that were spending the most money to advertise in Vogue should theoretically get the most credits. So when you're looking through Vogue, you probably will notice a correlation between the advertisers and the credits. Mm. So as in, if there's a giant ad for YSL, for example, you might then just just by chance happen to see YSL in the fashion crowd. I would be shocked a, if you didn't. Spread. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so I read Vogue obsessively, like as a teen, as a young person. I just feel like it fed me more. But <laughs> that would never have occurred to me as a young person. But as you're saying it, I'm like, yeah, of course, of course. Of yeah. Course. And she got in trouble when she didn't feature enough credits by advertisers. And, you know, over the course of her entire tenure at Vogue, she was rumored to be having trouble hanging on to her job. Right. These rumors come around cyclically. <laughs> Every certain number of years, there's like the rumors that Anna Winter is going to be fired or leave her job. And the one time where I could find that she was maybe actually in some trouble was when she she wasn't perceived as featuring enough of her advertiser credits. The late Cy Newhouse, who ran Conde Nast and was her boss for the majority of her time, in her job as editor-in-chief of Vogue, sat her down and said, I suggest you follow the money. She did not even respond. She didn't say anything. She just did it. So I sort of have this idea that Anna Wintour and her career can tell us the history of fashion and the fashion industry over the last 40 years. She grew up in England, the daughter of the editor-in-chief of a very important newspaper. And then she came of age as a teenager in 60s London, which was a really important and changing time for fashion for women mm -hmm. with the arrival of the miniskirt. And that's when she got the bob. <laughs> yeah, the bob, um, which, the distinguishes, bob. which distinguishes her now. But a number of people pointed out to me, <laughs> uh, every girl in London had that haircut at the time. <laughs> she just hung on to it. She kept it. <laughs> and then at least the way that I understand it, like leverage several relationships, not just romantic, with powerful men and came to American Vogue in 1988. One of the things that she changed with her first Vogue cover was putting full bodies on the cover, not just close-ups of faces. Can you talk about that first cover? Yeah. I just want to go back to something you said. Oh, yeah, you, you said she leveraged relationships with powerful men. I think it's important also to understand that she had a lot of privilege in her life and she came from money. She had a trust fund. 
She started her career in magazines in London in the late 60s and early 70s, and that pace did not suit her. It was way too slow, and she wanted to go to New York where everything was faster, and the fashion industry was bigger and more vibrant, and the media industry was bigger and more vibrant. And she landed at Harper's Bazaar, but she was able to do that because her mother was American, so she had a passport mm. that would allow her to come and work here. She had money because she had this trust fund, and she was able to buy designer right. clothes and come to Harper's Bazaar and everyone was like, oh my God, who is this creature wearing Missoni every day and looking so <laughs> spectacular? And I think that's all really important to understand in her early success. That's not to take away from her talent, but fashion is an image-based business and she was walking the walk, so to speak. But going back to your question about her first cover featuring Michaela Burke, the Israeli model, that cover was really important because the editor-in-chief who preceded Anna Wintour, had been doing the same style of cover, all these very tightly cropped headshots of models with big 80s earrings and like the blush and maybe like a poofy bang. And Anna pulled it back. The focus was more on the fashion and less on like mm. the face. The first cover she did uh, featured Christian Lacroix, and she's wearing guest jeans, and her hair is down and wavy and undone. She looks like she's not really wearing a lot of makeup, and she's outside. Mm. She's not in a studio. I just said, well, let's just try this. Right. And uh, off we went. To me, it just said, this is something new. This is something different. And I remember the, pr the printers called us up because they thought we'd made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> just wanting to check that that actually was the cover. So it was a huge departure aesthetically, but it was also pretty savvy because... I think it opened up uh, the magazine to be able to give those cover credits to important advertisers. And I think that that mixing of high with low, like that that Christian Lacroix top would have been so incredibly expensive, right? Like, the, Oh, was, yeah, yeah. I'm it, sure it was price it, upon request. Yeah. That mixing of high with low, which is something we sort of take for granted in styling these days. I think you make the point that that was pretty new when she was doing it. Yeah, that was new. The other thing that I think that fashion and celebrity are so intertwined nowadays and people take that for granted and they don't they don't see why it would never be that way. Supermodels used to be the faces of fashion and Anna really likes models and she always wanted to have supermodels but I think she could see that celebrities were where the culture was going and that's where the interest mm -hmm. was. She had an example of this when she put Madonna on the cover in May 1989. Mm -hmm. I remember getting quite a bit of criticism for my first uh, Madonna cover and that, you know, she's not Vogue, she'll never sell. And, you know, it was it was a, a little bit risky and, you know, it was up something extraordinary, like 40% on the newsstands. That sold really, really, really well. And I think that was an early indication of like, hey, maybe instead of putting Cindy Crawford on the cover twice a year, uh, put some celebrities on the covers. And then that became her strategy. And she fine-tuned it even more so that she was really only putting movie stars on the cover. Like there was a period mm -hmm. of time where Vogue wouldn't even really put television stars on the covers. Mm -hmm. It was just movie <laughs> stars. And they've diversified in recent years, obviously. Now you see a lot more music stars, for instance. It's really interesting to me because part of the shift of putting celebrities on the cover has led to the further intertwining between fashion and celebrity, where actors are now being asked on the red carpet, like, what are you wearing? And I also think it really paved the way for celebrities to be the endorsers. It's now a default that Miss Dior is going to be X actress or whatever. Yeah. And that the new face of whatever brand is going to be an actress. 
And I think because of that, we got so used to celebrities endorsing products that it then made sense for them to start their own companies. So kind of in a galaxy brain way, like Anna paved the way for celebrities like Rihanna to start Fenty and Kim Kardashian to start Skims and become billionaires. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And that occurred to me as well when I was researching the book. And she may even be advising. I I would be surprised if Kim Kardashian didn't reach out to her and get her opinion on stuff. (laughs) Serena Williams, who has her fashion line and is friends, describes Anna as a close personal friend, spoke to me for the book. And she said that she reached out to Anna and she would get her advice on her clothing line and also like her wedding dress, (laughs) what she's wearing to the Met Gala. She would get her advice on that. Although not all celebrities do. I know, I think that's a misconception that Anna's maniacally approving everything, but Mm. she's not. But the people, the celebrities who have a relationship with her will reach out and, and get her opinion. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. Rocketmoney.com infamous. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So Anna Wintour melded fashion with celebrity, establishing the landscape we now see today. But her soft power isn't limited to white dresses. It goes all the way to the White House. Something else I didn't realize was actually just how important a role she plays in politics and what a big kind of democratic fundraiser she is. She's one of the the top, yeah, she's one of the top democratic bundlers. In fact, she was close to getting an ambassadorship under Obama. It's hard to say close, but she was 
considered and a, someone from uh, the Obama camp did talk to her about it. But then for various reasons, it, it never came to fruition. The other part I found fascinating is there was a story about how after Bill Clinton got inaugurated, Anna sent a note to Hillary Clinton. She sent a note to Hillary Clinton offering Vogue's help picking out her clothes, and she accepted it. I think one of the most famous covers Anna Winter did was with Hillary Clinton in the late 90s mm-hmm. after the Monica Lewinsky scandal. The idea of being first lady and then Anna Winter being like, we can help you dress if you want, is just like... Oh I mean, you can imagine Insane. being in that position and fashion is really not your thing, yet everyone's talking about what you're wearing. You can understand why. Why? Oh, you would say yes. You would oh, say yes. Sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. I would say yes. And I would be so scared about those meetings. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Anna as a personal brand or an icon. She sort of built a personal brand before that was a thing that oh, yeah. was talking about. Yeah. So there's the haircut, the bob that we already mentioned, and then the sunglasses. What is the <laughs> point of those sunglasses? The sunglasses are prescription. <laughs> and she says that they <laughs> they allow her to hide what she's thinking and stuff like that. And that might be true, but they're actually prescription and People who've tried them on say they're quite strong. One of her friends also told me that she misplaces them all the time. But her father had a had an eye condition called macular degeneration. And if I'm not mistaken, that's a hereditary condition. I'm not an eye doctor. It is possible that she is trying to also protect her eyes. But my understanding is that she prefers the look of, of sunglasses to regular glasses. And so she just wears them everywhere inside, even at night. I heard stories about her, you know... Someone who shared a car with her at night said she wore her sunglasses the whole car ride. I guess I, I did hear stories about her having <laughs> meetings inside the Kanye West office wearing wearing her sunglasses, but she doesn't always have okay. them on. I guess that's just the image that I have in my head from from her being photographed is just this very thin woman with this bob and these bangs and those giant oversized sunglasses. Like that's yes, she's so well turned out. I mean, I say this in a positive way. <laughs> like she's like AI. Like it's just remarkable <laughs> how she puts herself together every single day. She has hair and makeup come to her place every morning, her townhouse every morning. But that is insane. It's got a, <laughs> It is crazy. But she's she gets it done really fast. Talk me through her day. Yeah, she gets up, I think, between 4 and 5 a.m. And she says that she reads the paper. She looks at social media. She does have a Finsta. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not going to say what the name of the account is, but she has a Finsta. <laughs> and she looks at... I want to know what that is so badly. <laughs> she looks at social media, the newspapers, etc. She exercises. She gets her hair and makeup done. She's chauffeured to work. I think she gives her assistants a heads up that she's coming. Where my reporting ended around the very beginning of the pandemic, she had two or three assistants. <laughs> um, but she'll give her assistants a heads up. They'll get her a blueberry muffin and a, a whole milk latte from Starbucks sitting on her desk. When she walks in, she just starts talking. <laughs> People said it's like a stream of consciousness of things mm-hmm. that need to get done. And her assistants are ready with like an open 
email draft or something so they can type everything that she's saying. Tell Simone I'm not going to prove that girl that she sent me for the Brazilian layout. I asked for clean, athletic, smiling. She sent me dirty, tired, and paunchy. And RSVP yes to the Michael Kors party. I want the driver to drop me off at 9.30 and pick me up at 9.45 sharp. Then call Natalie at Glorious Foods and tell her no for the 40th time. No, I don't want duckwise. I want torts filled with warm rhubarb compote. And then call my ex-husband and remind him that parent-teacher conference is at Daltner tonight and then call my and then from there, she's kind of like in meetings a lot of the day, running around. Like she manages not just Vogue, but all of Condé Nast really at this point. Mm-hmm. So she could be meeting with other magazines, meeting with her team at Vogue. When she wants something, she wants it done right away. A lot of people mm-hmm. had stories about her asking them to do stuff. And then they get back to their desk and she'd be asking them if it's done yet. And she would say too, like she would get annoyed with kind of the Hollywood machine. If she wanted something done, she would call Hollywood agents herself if she needed to get something done. Or she would pick up the phone and call like Rupert Murdoch or Harvey Weinstein. And she would always say like, I don't understand why they have their assistants do everything. It's so much faster (laughs) to just like do everything yourself. I think often she has lunch at her desk because she has so much going on. And people are fascinated by what she eats. Um, She was getting for a long time a steak and caprese salad without the tomatoes for lunch. And she would eat a few bites and then that would be that. And then I think she may have changed her lunch after that to a fruit and cheese plate. And then after work, she often goes to see a movie or she goes to the theater. She really loves the theater. Or she'll go to maybe like a fashion event or she'll have an event at her home. And then Mm -hmm. she goes to bed and does it all over again. There's so many things in that that just feel like both a titan of a time gone by and just absolutely a devil wears Prada, which we have to talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. But you said that people are obsessed with what she eats. I found myself interested in that because to me, Anna Wintour epitomizes the thinness that is idolized within the fashion industry. But I sort of feel like she missed the body inclusivity movement in in any meaningful way. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, for all... All the things she was ahead on or she shaped in culture, people who worked closely with her did express to me, not just surprise, but maybe shock that she really missed the whole moment around inclusivity. For so long, she she worked to keep the images that you saw in Vogue just be very thin people. Oprah lost... Yeah. She had Oprah lose oh my God. weight to be on the cover. Was it 20 pounds? I forgot the exact yes. number of pounds. Yeah, she had Oprah they lose. They gave Oprah a Vogue makeover that included losing 20 pounds. Yeah, but then there are other, you know, the Vogue makeover, it wasn't just Oprah. It was like Courtney Love, uh, the Spice Girls. They would kind of call it like getting, yeah, getting Vogueified. It wasn't always just about, you know, losing weight. It was also about kind of stripping down the things that people wore or the way people style themselves that made them them in the culture mm-hmm. and making them reflect Vogue. And attitudes towards that have completely changed. Totally. I mean, if you think of like the shows like What Not to Wear, which were so, so popular, and then people were like, well, hey, they're just kind of taking away everyone's personalities and making everyone look the same. <laughs> I think that Anna was really behind on that. I think that she missed that and she's, she had to play catch up. She seems rather fat phobic to me. Like there's so many instances in your book of people being worried that she wouldn't hire somebody because they're 25 pounds overweight and X, Y, and Z. That just, that's just like the, the stereotype of fashion that you want to not be true. But 
unfortunately, seems to be, at least in her world. It's not that she wouldn't hire people who she deemed to be too big, but she had to be, I guess, warned. I I had at least one example in the book of someone warning her, like, I have a candidate for your job that's really great. Please give her a chance. But she did expect people who worked at Vogue to embody Vogue. And that's how you get people working there who have so much privilege and who are, you know, a rather homogenous group of of people working there. I mean, that's the whole plot of The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is this assistant starts who who doesn't fit in with the way these people look and then she kind of undergoes a change. So, let's talk about The Devil Wears Prada, which was written by a former assistant who wasn't very good. <laughs> tell me tell me that story and Anna's reaction to hearing about it. Yeah, so Anna had an assistant. The person I <laughs> person I spoke to about this, who used to hire Anna's assistants, called them girls of privilege. So she had an assistant who was a girl of privilege whose father was a diplomat and she wanted to take off several weeks from work, which I think most executives would not be like, okay, sure, just leave for several weeks. So Anna mm-hmm. decides to replace this particular assistant And it's kind of an odd time of year to hire. Mm -hmm. I think it was like around the holidays. So in walks Lauren Weisberger, who had gone to Cornell, had a good resume, and they ended up hiring her. And she really wanted to be a writer. And Mm -hmm. the editors at Vogue did not think her writing was that great. And one of them suggested that she get writing classes. So she did. She went, she got writing classes. And I guess the advice she got was write what you know, what she knew was being Anna Winter's assistant. So she started writing up what became the Devil Wears Prada. Her writing teacher sent the material to an agent who called and said, if she wants to sell this, I can sell it today. She sold it for $250,000, pretty good for a first-time novelist. That's <laughs> Particularly fantastic. at that time, yeah. So then when Anna found out that the book was coming out, her reaction was, I can't even remember who that girl is. <laughs> Such was the impression Lauren Weisberger apparently made on Anna Winter. <laughs> I do think there was the feeling in the office at the time that it was coming out that like, oh my God, this is such a betrayal. Mm-hmm. But right. I was told that Anna really wasn't bothered by it. And I believe that because I think that if you spend your time getting bothered by stuff like that, you cannot accomplish in a day what Anna Winter does. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So Anna Wintour has fashioned Vogue into an aspirational bastion of wealth and fame. But what happens when celebrities become rich business people and rich business people become celebrities? That's why we have Jeff Bezos and Lauren Sanchez on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Which, they, inside editorial. Yeah, that was that was an interesting. Oh, oh, moment. they weren't on the cover. I'm sorry. No, they didn't. <laughs> maybe in the future. Maybe in the future. I stand corrected. I was just so shook by those images. Which, what, did, what did you think oh, of it? Oh my god! I mean, to me, it like epitomized the like AI retouchedness that. Vogue images are going towards. So part of the reason everything is so retouched is just so that Anna approves it. You can see it a bit in the September issue, which is the 2009 Vogue documentary by RJ Cutler. You can see Anna saying like, oh, pull that stomach in. Anna strives for perfection. Which means not a single re wrinkle and everybody just looks like a smooth alien. Yes, they um. <laughs> retouched. Yes, someone told me about how they retouched a baby's neck, the fat around a baby's <laughs> neck. I don't know if that was proactive retouching or Anna had seen it and requested that it be retouched. Just to talk about Jeff Bezos and Lauren Sanchez again, to me, it makes complete sense that they would be in vogue just because it, it gets people talking. It's the same as putting Kim and Kanye on the cover when she yeah. did that in, in 2014. Like, it's going to upset some people because they're just so over the top and gauche in some ways. I think it's more like, too, it's just what they represent, which is like the third richest man in the world. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, having, planning this, what will probably be, I mean, we don't know, an elaborate wedding. And she's in vogue wearing super expensive stuff, talking about their super expensive life. And that right. would have been a story that would have gone off without a hitch in the 90s. And I read a mm. lot of these stories. There's so many stories about socialites and who have like great sailboats and or like Melania Trump. She was on the cover of Vogue, pegged to her wedding to Donald Trump. That story, she gets on a private plane mm -hmm. and she goes to Paris to acquire her wedding trousseau, which is like a trunk of clothes that she's going to wear for her wedding. <laughs> and it's all like couture, this extraordinary, super luxurious experience. I mean, at the time it was fine, but like you right. do that today and it's kind of like, what the hell? I think the reaction to those images of Bezos and Lauren Sanchez in, in Vogue is that it really speaks to this class divide that we're experiencing more and more now where we're just divided into the haves and the have-nots. And we see so much more luxury than, than ever before, whether it's just through Instagram, watching Kim Kardashian posting pics with these Louis Vuitton duffel bags in Aspen or wherever she is. But at the same time, there's more income inequality and more credit card debt and right. student loan debt than ever before. And it just makes me think, like, what is the role of fashion and of Vogue in such a divided world? That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, no, it is a big question, but it's a fascinating question. And I think another reason there was so much backlash to that Vogue story with Bezos and Lauren Sanchez 
is because there was just no effort to kind of get on the level of the average person. <laughs> she's flying a helicopter like she's riding a bike. Right. Not thinking about the emissions from Bali. Yeah, just like flying a helicopter because like, oh, we have to take my Vogue pictures. So we're just going to hop in this helicopter and fly across this chunk of Texas that my fiance owns. You wrote a sentence that was something along the lines of like, yet for Anna and and many others, fashion at its best represents optimism about the future. And I guess I was just thinking about this being like, how how can you have optimism about the future in an era of climate crisis? You know, like, I, I don't know. That's hard. Well, this is the thing. This is why I think, you know, Vogue feels behind sometimes, especially now, because like, what does optimism mean to someone like Anna, who grew up with money, grew up with every privilege, really, and has kind of lived her life with with every privilege and lives today mm-hmm. such an unusually glamorous life, you know, with a chauffeur and the expense budget that she has. As I reported in the book, like she expensed HVAC repairs to her home because she has parties there. And they were like... <laughs> A lot, like a lot of money. <laughs> oh my <laughs> like, god! I wish expensive. I could do that. So, like the life that she has, you know, where she can just expense everything. So, I don't know. Like, what is optimism to someone like that? Right. She doesn't need to have it. So, let's talk about what's next for Anna because she somehow managed to hang on to power and perhaps even increase her power in a dwindling industry. Media, in a lot of ways, is dying, and yet she's probably the most powerful woman in it. But it also seems really lonely. Like, she's fired all of her lieutenants, or they've left. Grace Coddington, Andre Leon Talley, Edward Enenfull is leaving. But what's next for her? Like, where does she go from here? That's the big question. And I don't think she's told anybody. I talked to her friends, people who know her well, and they said that she has not given any indication of her plans for the future. We have an election coming up. I would be surprised if we didn't see her active and bundling for the Democrats. And if that didn't give rise to rumors about ambassadorships. But She can't run Vogue forever. She is Anna Winter, but she's still a mortal being. She's been there 35 years, but she is 74 years old. She can't do it forever. I mean, would you ever see her running a big brand? I I think that was something that I was really struck by is given this rise of online retail, like the fact that Vogue never vertically integrated, Condé Nast rather, never vertically integrated into owning like Annette Porte or another giant online retailer, like Vogue doesn't need to pretend to be journalism. So why did they never do that? Like Anna could have been an amazing CEO of Net-a-Porter or something. I would see her as an ambassador before I see her running something like Net-a-Porter. I'm not saying she couldn't do mm. it, but I think that I don't think it would be fun for her. I don't think it would be Mm. as interesting for her. I think she's an editorial person at heart. And I think this is what she always really wanted to do. And she's really holding on with a white knuckle grip. Well, I think that's basically it. I guess one last thing. What's next for for you? (laughs) Well, people can find me... um, on Substack at amyodell.substack.com. I write a newsletter that goes out twice a week about fashion and culture. 
and I will be writing more books. Also, if people want to see any of the things that we talked about, I made a lot of TikTok <laughs> and Instagram videos showing Anna's old editorials, which I think are so fascinating to see. So you can find me at, on TikTok. I'm Amy Odell Writer. And on Instagram, I'm Instamy Odell, I-N-S-T-A-M-Y-O-D-E-L-L. So if people want to see more, I have it all there. That's it for this week's episode on Anna Wintour and Fashion's Future. If you enjoyed this story, you should go back and listen to our series on Tori Birch, her ex-husband Chris Birch, and the shoe that launched a knockoff empire and a very messy divorce. Scroll back in your feed for the episode titled Tori Birch, Retail Revenge, Part 1. See you next week. Hey guys, I'm the Iceman. <laughs> very cold. No, very warm. My life changes because I try his method and it works. Wim Hof, he's the man. These techniques I learned from him. One, the breathing. When he does it, man, sometimes he does it like a Viking. Even that's giving me a little head rush. Dude, my hand is numb. That is so much ice, bro. And then I asked the question which really altered my life in the last year. Uh, when I asked the question of how many people have died doing the Wim Hof method. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.